Good morning, church. It is uh, fantastic uh, to be here to see here. It's a little different to what I'm used to. Uh, if you've uh, been watching online and uh, perhaps you're not a normal member of GCC, uh, then I'm Jonathan and uh, I have the privilege of bringing uh, God's word to us this morning. And what a fantastic privilege that is. Uh, if you have been following online, uh, you'll also know that uh, we've been going through First Thessalonians. And uh, actually, we're at the last chapter and I think the final sermon uh, in the series. Uh, hopefully, you've been enjoying it. I have been. Uh, it's been actually uh, really good just to get into the Word and to read it for, for what it was uh, for, and for what it is. Um, and I, hopefully, it's been a huge encouragement to you as it has been to me. Uh, so without further ado, we're going to read uh, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 28. And I'm going to invite Cass to come and read that for us. Thanks, Cass. Reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thank you, Cass. Uh, last week, Joe reminded us of the Bible acronym, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Uh, indeed, today's passage, uh, if you've got an NIV Bible, even has the heading Final Instructions above it. And it's interesting because we often hear that Christianity is not so much a religion. It's not about just adhering to rules, but it's really a relationship. It's a relationship with our Creator. Why then, though, are there sections in the Bible like this one? Ones that appear to be long lists of rules. Uh, if you've ever read Deuteronomy or, Le or Leviticus, then you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, and naturally, we might conclude that God just wants us to follow all of these laws. And if we ever happen to step out of line, then we can expect punishment. But if we really are saved by grace through faith, not by works or by obeying rules and regulations, then tell me, what is the point of all these commands? Well, it shouldn't actually be a surprise to you what the answer is. And, and Joe has actually answered this for us uh, in previous sermons. Last week, in fact, I believe he did. And the answer is to do with the fact that these commands are not to do with our salvation. No one can satisfy the requirements of the law. Not you or I, not Pastor Joe, not Paul or Moses or Abraham. We are saved by grace alone and nothing I can do can add to my salvation. Jesus' finished work on the cross alone has saved me from a Christless eternity. 
When my trust and hope is in Jesus, nothing in all creation can separate me from the love of Christ. If I obey none, any or all of these commands, none of that will change my salvation in Jesus. These instructions are not for our salvation, as though it were possible for us to obey them all anyway. These instructions are given rather for our sanctification. Sanctification is a lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus. We've already touched on God's will for our lives. Actually, two sermons ago, Joe did that in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3a, which says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctification begins at the moment that we come into right relationship with God and will continue until we hear the final trumpet call or we breathe our last. These commands are a part of this process and show us how we can fulfill the will of God for our lives. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old nephew named Eddie. He's great, fantastic kid, very cute. Got to see him yesterday. Uh, My brother-in-law, Ryan, he sent this video in our family WhatsApp group of Eddie cooking some chicken. Eddie cooking some chicken. Uh, Ryan had him propped up on the kitchen bench and he had this big bowl of uh, pieces of chicken and and Ryan would like uh, pick up the oil bottle and Eddie would put his hand on it and then Ryan would pour the oil on as as Eddie kind of just had his hand on the oil bottle as well. Uh, He would do the same with the marinade and with various other ingredients, the salt and whatever else. Uh, He would wrap his hand around Eddie's as he stirred the bowl with a big wooden spoon. Now, I'm a pretty smart guy, and uh, being the keen detective that I am, I was immediately suspicious that Eddie was not, in fact, the one cooking chicken at all. It was really all Ryan. You see, if you removed Ryan from that equation, you would end up with a two-year-old throwing chicken to the ground. The rest of my family were not nearly as perceptive as I, and they continued to congratulate Eddie for his culinary skills. When it comes to obeying these instructions in the Bible, we are to be a little bit like Eddie. We are to follow our dad's commands and we are to be obedient to him. But at every step of the way, we're actually relying on our father's hands. You see, it's God who props us up. He's the one who has the strength to lift the bowl and stir the pot. He's the one who knows the recipe and gives us the ingredients. And he knows exactly what to add and exactly how much. He's teaching us Not so that one day we can graduate and be a chef independent from him. No, no. He's teaching us to be fully reliant on him, to be his instrument. And God willing, we are active and willing participants, just like Eddie, delighted to be working alongside our father. You see, when it comes to working hard, when it comes to caring for others, when it comes to admonishing, when it comes to loving others, and so on and so forth, as we're going to hear about today, We're to do all of these things, all of these instructions and commands we're to do together with our Heavenly Father, relying on Him to be our guide and to be our strength. We can't do it on our own. In fact, at the very end of the passage in verses 23 and 24, Paul says that explicitly. He says, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. We are given God's commands to obey, but it is God himself who will sanctify us. He is the faithful one. He is going to cook the chicken, 
and we have the privilege of being a willing and active participant as he does so. You might have come into church today wondering, what is God's will for my life? Well, God's will is that you be sanctified, that you become more and more like Jesus every single moment of every single day of your life. We accomplish this by relying on God fully, by yielding to a spirit that is at work within us. And that's why we have all these instructions, that we can better reflect Jesus. That was Paul's desire for the young Thessalonian church. He wanted to encourage them in this journey, to strengthen them in their faith, and to reassure them of the life to come. We're going to examine these instructions, and some of them we're only going to touch on very briefly because there are actually quite a lot of them. Uh, but pay, pay particular attention to verses 16 and 18, uh, 16 through to 18. We're going to learn how we can keep relying on God and on His strength to accomplish these things. These verses themselves are commands, but more than that, they are, key, they are keys to fulfilling God's will for our lives. And I've categorized them very loosely into eight different encouragements. May we be open and sensitive to God's spirit as we listen to his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity now to gather as your people, to open your word and to hear from your spirit. Uh, Father, I know that you're going to speak to us. And Lord, I pray that we would have ears that are ready to hear, that we have eyes that are ready to see, that we have hearts that are ready to receive. Lord, I pray in whatever way that you prompt us, in whatever way you put your finger on the things you want us to change in our lives, that God, that we would respond, that we would yield to you, and that God, that we would change for your glory. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one, an encouragement to leaders in verses 12 and 13. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work and live in peace with each other. Uh, Paul here is referring to those who are in leadership, most likely the elders and deacons in Thessalonica. There is, however, actually a message here for both those in leadership positions, as well as those who come under them. In our church, leadership positions might include people like Pastor Joe, the elders, and the ministry team, uh, and grace group leaders as well. And Paul's implied command to them is threefold. A leader must work hard, they must care for those in the church, and as part of that care, they are also expected to admonish when appropriate. Uh, you don't have to be in leadership for very long to realise that caring for people is hard work. Any parent would know this. And caring for people in the church is also hard. It means being involved with and investing time and energy into the spiritual welfare of others. At the end of the day, we are accountable to God for the people he's entrusted us with. And God knows if we really do care for them. To admonish someone is to gently rebuke or to correct someone. Uh, as a parent must discipline a child for them to learn and to mature, so too must leaders admonish those who are doing wrong. To neglect this duty would be detrimental to the growth of the church. It would indicate a defective leadership more concerned with man's approval than with God's. And so today, if you're in leadership, then Paul's message to you is to work hard for those that God has placed in your care and to admonish them when appropriate. And because this task is so important and so vital to the church, Paul calls the rest of us, myself included, to acknowledge our leaders 
and to hold them in the highest regard because of their work. Their work is God's given duty to them. It's their privilege. And because they do it faithfully, because it's not easy, and because it's for our ultimate good, we should respect them. Too often we are quick to criticise or point out the flaws in our leaders. It's easy to complain and be negative about things we think that the church should or should not be doing. But Paul urges us to shift our perspective. In fact, one of the best ways that you can encourage and unburden your leaders is just by living at peace with each other, as it says at the end of verse 13. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that the biggest drain of a leader's mental and emotional energy is when there are disputes between members of the church. He or she said or did this or that. I said or did this or that in retaliation. Unresolved conflict and tensions inevitably rise, causing division and stress for everyone involved. To live at peace with one another doesn't mean that we just avoid the issue. It doesn't mean that we bury our problems, ignore others, or leave the church. Rather, it means we prayerfully and lovingly confront our brother or sister directly, as soon as practical, and seek to resolve our differences. We seek to restore a damaged relationship with the end goal being God glorified and his church strengthened. For more on this, you can check out Matthew 5, 21 and Matthew 18. When's the last time you showed appreciation for your leaders? When's the last time you encouraged them by telling them how their leadership has helped you in your life? What about the unresolved issues that you have with other people in the church? Acknowledge your leaders, hold them in the highest regard, and remember to live at peace with one another. Number two, an encouragement to serve. Verse 14 says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. There are three reasons that Paul gives as to why someone may not be serving in the church. The first type of people are simply lazy. They need to be admonished and shown the correct way. The second type of people are discouraged or disheartened. Perhaps they've had a bad experience or are suffering for reasons that are not made known to us. They need to be encouraged. And the third type of people, they just don't have the strength right now to serve. They're weak. They need help, whether that's practical life help like mowing their lawn, financial help in paying the bills, or spiritual help in growing their faith muscles. Regardless of the reason, we need to be patient with everyone, the lazy, the discouraged, and the weak. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to discern how we interact with each person and encourage them appropriately. Otherwise, we may end up doing more harm than good. Number three, an encouragement to forgive. In verse 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. When we are wronged, payback is never the right option. Jesus showed us exactly what this means on the cross as he prayed in Luke 23, 34a. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Every time that someone wrongs us, we have an opportunity to demonstrate the same forgiveness that Christ has shown to us. The only way that you can know that you've truly been transformed and understood the forgiveness of Christ is by being able to forgive someone else who has wronged you. And yet even when we are wronged, Paul says that instead of seeking revenge, we should strive to do what is good for our offender, even an unbelieving one. Romans 12, 21 puts it like this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Loving our enemies is the central message of the cross. And we are truly like Jesus when we show this same love to our enemies. Number four, an encouragement to rejoice. Verses 16 to 18 says this. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You may know that the shortest verse in the Bible is John 11.35, Jesus wept. Uh, This is actually only strictly true in the English translations. Uh, In fact, verses 16 and 17, as we've just read, are equally short in terms of number of words. They're both two words each, rejoice always, pray continually. There's no excuse not to memorize them. However, in the original Greek, John 11.35 is actually three different words, and it's uh, actually longer than rejoice always by six characters. Um, And so these are very short verses, but don't let their short length fool you. They are, in fact, essential and powerful keys to living the Christian life. In our human nature, these three commands actually seem quite absurd. They are often uh, often at odds with our normal instincts. I think most of us would agree that 2020 has been the worst year in recent history. Uh, We're growing weary of the never-ending string of doom and gloom headlines in the newspapers. Uh, On a personal level, I think we're struggling more than ever. Uh, According to the Black Dog Institute's research done this year, one in five Australians will experience mental illness, the most common being anxiety, depression and substance abuse. It says also that 45% of all Australians, almost half, will experience mental illness at least once in their lifetime. How is it that Paul can say, rejoice always? Isn't he way out of his league? Isn't he completely out of touch with what we experience here in the 21st century of Australia? Perhaps Paul here is just talking to Thessalonian Christians. Maybe he's talking to just first century Christians who don't have the same kinds of struggles that I face. Well, you'd be right in saying that he had different struggles. But in fact, their struggles are probably far more severe than ones that we'll ever face in the 21st century here. Uh, Let's look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. When it comes to suffering, Paul was very well acquainted. He knew it intimately. He would be given a thorn in the flesh. He would be put in prison and continue to be, contor- continue to be tortured up until his death. He experienced abandonment and betrayal from some of the people he trusted the most. He had to deal with the weight of his own sin. In his own words, he was once a blasphemer, persecutor, and violent man who was responsible for the murder of Stephen and an unknown number of other Christians. And on top of all that, it's hard to imagine how his concern for all the churches would not overwhelm him daily. 
And yet it is this same Paul who would speak these words from a prison cell. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. In what sense is Paul qualified to say these words? In what sense can he, or anyone indeed, rejoice when everything around them seems to be falling apart? When all they face all day long is unspeakable acts of human evil? When life gives us no conceivable reason to rejoice? Well, the answer, of course, is this. Paul knew that no matter what happened to him, he would have Jesus. He would always have Jesus. And Paul chose to trust in Jesus. He didn't trust in his own feelings. He didn't trust in other people or the circumstances that he faced. He chose to plant his hope and his trust squarely on Jesus instead. The source of his joy was never based on what he went through. He knew with every fiber of his being that no matter what happened to him, whether he lived or whether he died, he would always have Jesus. Romans 14, 8. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. That's why Paul could always rejoice. And for the very same reason, we can always rejoice, because we have Jesus, and nothing can take him away from us. Had Paul never experienced that kind of suffering, he would still have been correct. We always have ample reason to rejoice because we have Jesus, our blessed assurance. Some of you may know the hymn. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my saviour am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my saviour all the day long. Number five, an encouragement to pray. I actually prefer the way that most other English translations word this. They say, pray without ceasing. And again, this verse kind of seems absurd to us. How is it possible that we can pray without ceasing? I mean, if that really were the case, then we should still be praying right now. I should have never started the sermon. I should have just kept praying. Uh, we should not eat or sleep or work because we should be praying instead. As we might suspect, the act of prayer that Paul is referring to is not actually the physical act of getting on our knees, of holding our hands, closing our eyes and, and speaking to the Lord. Rather, Paul is referring to our attitude, an attitude of prayer. What is this attitude? Well, when we pray, what we're actually doing is saying to God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I need your help. When we pray, we're recognizing that we are the branches who can do nothing apart from the true vine. We're showing our complete and utter dependence upon him, that we need him to intervene and to enter our lives. To pray without ceasing, then, is to live every moment relying on God. But the opposite is also true. If we are not praying regularly, then we're relying on our own human intellect and strength. We're trying to cook the chicken all by our two-year-old selves. When we have the right prayer attitude, however, the way that we think and the way that we act will change. Every time we choose to pray instead of to worry, we're learning to trust in God more and more. Perhaps you're someone who worries a lot. You get uncomfortable when you're put in a situation that you can't control. 
Prayer helps us to offload our worries and the things that are out of our control and to give them to God instead. You see, God doesn't want us to shoulder these burdens. Our minds and our bodies were never designed to cope with such a weight. Regular prayer will give us the confidence to face such fears by giving them to the one who can handle them. Uh, In the not-so-old days before banking apps like Beamit existed, in order to pay someone, you would go and bank a check. Now, I've actually never done this, but this is, I assume, what happens. Uh, You get out your check book, which I've never had. Uh, You write out a check. You put their name on the check. I think you write in words exactly how much money you want to give to them because if you just wrote the number, they could modify the number. Uh, You put your signature on it, and then you walk over to the bank. You give it to the bank teller, and they deposit the money into that person's account. Uh, Now, one aspect of prayer is a little bit like this, and it's the act of depositing our worries and our problems into God's account. We commit our worries to him. We recognize that we don't know how to handle them or what to do about them, but that he does. When we have this correct attitude of prayer, we're constantly relying on him and committing all of our burdens to him. Instead of shouldering and carrying the burden alone, We charge it to his account. We're saying to God, I give you my burdens, I release them, my insecurities and my fears, and I let you look after them. My worries about my children or grandchildren, about my partner or spouse, about my parents or grandparents, about my friends or relatives, I lift them all up to you and trust them into your capable hands. It doesn't mean that we no longer care about them, It doesn't mean that we pretend our problems don't exist. It's not burying our heads in the sand or trying to live in an alternate reality. But what it does mean is that we relinquish any pretense that we are in control of the situation, as though it was somehow up to us to fix everything. We have to do what we can, but beyond that, we cannot make people's decisions for them, nor do we have the power to give life or take it away. But God does. And so it may be necessary to make this trip to God's bank over and over again, making microtransactions, if you will, moment by moment, depositing our fears and worries into his account. Or to put it another way, to put it succinctly, to pray continually, to pray without ceasing. Psalm 37, 5-7 says this, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Number six, an encouragement to give thanks. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You'll notice that Paul does not say to give thanks for all circumstances. Rather, we are to give thanks in all circumstances. We don't thank God for evil or temptations because neither of those things come from him. But sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances that we don't like, and sometimes we blame God for putting us there. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if God really did put you there. But I might be so bold as to remind you of Romans 8.28. Perhaps you know it. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This verse means that in every situation that we find ourselves in, whether we think it's a good or bad situation or somewhere in between, it is actually for our overall good. 
God is at work and has a purpose for us in every single circumstance we face. There are reasons, even in the most unpleasant of circumstances, as hard as it may be to understand, to be thankful for God working in us and through us. When we face challenges, we can be thankful that God is helping us to persevere and to learn endurance. When we go through loss and grief, we can be thankful for the opportunities that we experienced and the memories that we've shared. When we're sick or we're hurting, we can be thankful that our ultimate destination is heaven, where there is no sickness nor pain. No matter the situation, we can be thankful, we can rejoice, because we have Jesus. When we are able to thank God in any circumstance, we're able to look beyond the immediate and get a glimpse of the world as God sees it. He's working in us to achieve a far more permanent goal in our sanctification. In talking about our suffering with Christ, Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 to 18. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Number seven, an encouragement in the spirit. Verse 19 says, do not quench the spirit. Quenching the spirit is to ignore God's voice speaking to us. It's that time when we're at work and he says, go and tell this person about me, but we choose not to. It's when he says, go and apologize to your spouse or to your family, but we choose not to. It's when he says, come and spend time with me, but we turn on Netflix instead. To quench the spirit is to harden our hearts to the voice of God and to do our own thing instead. We don't want to be put in an uncomfortable situation or we don't want to feel awkward. And so in our minds, we rationalize away and justify our flimsy excuses. Let me give you a tip that has helped me. I've been training uh, to run for a while now, and, and there are times where I just don't feel like going out for a run. Um, and my tip is this. Don't think about it until you're out the door. Don't think about all the other things that you could do instead or how cold or wet it might be outside. Just get your gear on and go. Just get out the door. Go to the point of no return and do it. After all, delayed obedience is disobedience. Let us learn from the psalmist in Psalm 119.60. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. In verses 20 and 21, back in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says this. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. A prophecy in this context is not so much a prediction of the future as it is a message from God to his people. Prophets in the Bible were sent to deliver a word from God to his people. In 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14, Paul talks about how we should eagerly desire the spiritual gift of prophecy in order to build up the church. A person with such a gift might say to you, as an example, God told me that you will get married next year. Or maybe they might say, you're going to be blessed with children. Or they might reveal to you some other truth that you didn't know about your life. Paul says that we ought not to treat those words with contempt. We're not to dismiss them carelessly. We're not to have a blasé attitude towards them and ignore them. They could be God's way of revealing to us what he wants for our life. But at the same time, we shouldn't automatically assume that they are gospel truth either, especially if they happen to be what we want to hear. Instead, we're told that we need to test them by committing them to the Lord, seeing if there is truth to them, 
and checking that they fall in line with the word of God instead. Number eight, an encouragement to do right. Verses 21 and 22. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. We are to cling and to cherish the attitudes, beliefs and thoughts that come from God. At the same time, we are also to rid ourselves of every kind of evil. You can't just be good and not reject evil. You can't come to church and and go to your Bible study and give to the poor, but then go home and look at pornography or throw fits of rage or gossip behind people's backs. No, we need to do the former without neglecting the latter. We are to hold on to what is good, we are to do what is right, but at the same time, we must be careful to rid ourselves of sin. Verses 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Have you ever wondered what the will of God for your life is in this season? What is it that God is trying to do through this pandemic and through the turmoil of 2020? Well, Scripture tells us quite plainly that God himself, the God of peace, is sanctifying us through and through. He's working so that your entire being, your spirit, your soul, and your body might be kept blameless until Jesus returns. He is faithful to his word and his promise and his mission, and he will do it. Every day as we follow Jesus and as we submit to the Spirit's leading, we are gradually becoming more and more like Jesus, being made into his likeness. There are many areas in our lives in which God wants us to grow, And my hope is that we would leave church this morning, recognising the areas that the Holy Spirit is challenging us directly. May we take heed of the scriptures and not quench the Spirit as he reveals to us the things in our lives that do not please him. May we be bold in making the necessary changes, yielding to God's will for our lives. May we rejoice always. May we pray without ceasing. May we give thanks in all circumstances, for that is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us now and forever. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that your word is clear. God, we thank you that your spirit is here, that he is moving in our midst that he right now is challenging us in so many ways. Father, I know that you are challenging me in pretty much every single point that you've given me to share. Father, I know it's, it's almost like this passage of scripture was written directly for me. And I believe, God, that it was also written and given for your people, your hearers, for your flock this morning as well. And so, Lord, I pray that we would heed your word, that, God, we would not quench your spirit, that, God, as you've challenged and convicted us, we would leave this place changed and different, determined but also relying on your spirit and your strength to be different people, to be a people more sanctified today and tomorrow and the day after, to be people that look more like Jesus every day. Lord, I pray particularly that you would help us to rejoice always. And God, for those of us who worry, 
for those of us who struggle when we're placed in circumstances not within our control. Father, I pray that we would do the hard work of depositing them to you, committing our worries, our insecurities, our fears to your account. God, help us to do this. Father, I pray that you'd help us to pray that, God, we know if we've been slack, we know if we've ignored your voice, we know, God, if we've upset you and not prioritized you. Father, I pray that you would help us to depend wholly on you. Change our prayer lives. Make us prayer warriors. Make us people who love to pray, to delight in conversing and spending time with you each and every day. Father, I pray that you'd help us to give thanks. That again, no matter what we face, in any circumstance, that we would be able to give thanks to you for the good, for the blessings, for the many blessings that you've given us, and that we give thanks for Jesus. Father, I thank you that you're convicting us now, and Lord, I pray that we would leave this place changed, changed and transformed by your Spirit. Father, this I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church.